verse 14, he's been talking about Jesus Christ. We'll go back and read this entire section, which we're now concluding. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Just to give a little bit of review, we had in this section, first of all, several verses presenting to us a series of facts regarding Christ's relationship to the old and new creations. You will recall that he was the image of the invisible God, that he was the firstborn uh, with relationship to the old creation, the heir of all things, that he was the creator and the one who sustains the creation, that he was the one by whom the creation was made, made of his own power, and that he was the one unto whom the creation was made, culminating in him, creating for his own purposes and glory. Regarding the new creation, he considered that, uh, oh, and not only that as regards the old creation, but he was also the creator of the heavens as well as the earth, the creator of the, the thrones and dominions and principalities and powers, all of the heavenly host created by him. And then in regard to the new creation, that he is the, the head of the church, which is his body, that he is the organic head, nourishing, sustaining, that he is the authoritative head, guiding directing, protecting, defending, that he is the beginning of the new creation and the beginning of the resurrection from the dead, the glorious resurrection, the firstborn from the dead. We had this, this list of things, one after another after another, about the relationship of Jesus Christ to the old creation and to the new creation. And then we were instructed as to why Jesus Christ was given such a position with regard to the old and new creation? And the answer was this, that in all things he might have the preeminence, that he might become the one recognized as the first, the highest, that no one would be above Jesus in any glory, but that he would have all the glory from the old and from the new creation. And for that reason, it was ordained that he should sustain these relationships to the old and new creation. And then, of course, we turn to the next question, which is, well, why? Why should Jesus be given the preeminence in all things? Why were things so arranged and executed as that Jesus Christ should have this universal preeminence? And the answer is twofold. First of all, in what we had last week, uh, that it was done because Jesus is the one in which the fullness of grace has taken up residence. It was a necessity for him to become preeminent in all because he had this fullness. How could it have been that a man or an angel should have been given preeminence over Christ in the old or new creation when Christ had the fullness of grace dwelling in him? To no other 
could the creation and maintenance of the world have been given. To no other could the redemption of the church been assigned. Only he had the fullness. No other would have even been capable of it. Because all the benefits of grace were confined to Christ for him to dispense. Christ Jesus is the fountain of living water, full of grace and truth. And if we receive grace, it is of the fullness of grace that is in Jesus. And so he must have the preeminence. And of course, if we ask the question, why again? Why, why did Jesus have the fullness of grace taking up residence in him? So that he would therefore be the one who must have the preeminence in all things. And that question, why, why wasn't this fullness of grace shared, passed around? Why not a little bit for you and for me and some for Jesus and some for the rocks and trees? And the answer is it pleased God. It pleased God for Jesus to be the true temple. It pleased God for Jesus to be the habitation of God and the source of every blessing. It was God's good pleasure, his will, his eternal desire in which he was delighted. It's perfect. It is good. It is entirely harmonious with his wisdom and justice and mercy and love. And it is entirely inscrutable, though majestic to behold. Who by searching can find out God? It is mystery, but it is a glorious mystery, because it is the wise and perfect <clears throat> eternal counsel of God. And that was the first half of the reason as to why Jesus Christ was the one made preeminent in all things, because it pleased God that he should have the fullness dwelling in him, the fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of grace. The second reason is in verse 20, uh, which is a continuation of this sentence. Uh, in fact, if we read it with the parallels spelled out in the way it is in the original, it reads, because in him God was pleased for all the fullness to dwell, and through him... To reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether the things upon the earth or the things in the heavens. So you see, it's two halves. God was pleased in him for the fullness to dwell, and God was pleased through him to reconcile all things to himself. And that's what we have to talk about today. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through him, by the blood of his cross, through him, whether the things upon the earth or the things in the heavens. What is reconciliation? That's our first question. What is reconciliation? What does it mean for things to be reconciled? What does it mean about them that they have to be reconciled? To reconcile, very simply, is to take two parties that are at odds with one another, two parties that have a conflict, a, a disagreement, a, a quarrel, an enmity, to take these two hostile parties and to settle the conflict, to make peace between them, to bring them back to a friendly agreement. Uh, I'll just give you an example of this used in a non-redemptive sense. It's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 10 and 11. Yet unto the married I command... Yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. See, so he's talking about, here's a married couple. And uh, this woman has departed from her husband. Because since in those days, 
the property was 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 uh, <clears throat> pretty much held in the name of the man. Uh, for a woman to <clears throat> essentially divorce is to to leave, to depart. So she's departed from her husband. Now, why why would a woman depart from her husband? Well, obviously, there has to be a conflict of some kind, a quarrel here, some sort of hostility between them. She won't live with him anymore. She's angry. He's angry, probably. So there's a conflict here. And Paul says, well, there's two choices. If, if you de don't depart, if you do depart, you can remain unmarried or you can be reconciled. Let the conflict be resolved. See, reconciled doesn't mean move back in and shout at one another at the top of your lungs. That's not reconciliation. He means for the conflict to be resolved, for peace to result, to return, in fact, to the normal marriage relationship, which is what? Love. This is the idea. Reconciliation, two parties who are hostile towards one another, who can't stand to live with one another, if you will. One of them has to go. And now reconciliation is for that whatever that conflict is to be put at rest so that they can live together amicably, peaceably, with love towards one another. Now obviously, as we've been saying, reconciliation presumes the presence of conflict. If, if, people, if there isn't a conflict of some sort, you don't need reconciliation. And between a holy God and sinful man, there is definitely conflict. Uh, Romans 5, what we were reading this morning. When we were enemies, Romans 5.10, when we were enemies, Colossians 1.21, our next verse, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, there is an adversarial relationship between the sinner and God on account of sin, on account of wicked works, when you were alienated and enemies by wicked works. The sinner, for his part, hates God. God is the enemy of the sinner. The sinner loves wickedness. The sinner practices wickedness. He does these things, he knows that God hates them, he does these things and has pleasure in them that do them, Romans 1 says. He hates God because God is holy. Because God commands him to, to depart from evil and to do good. And because the sinner loves evil, he does not want to depart from evil, and so he hates the one that tells him he must. So the sinner is angry at God. This is the final root of all opposition to the gospel. We will not have this man to rule over us. Remember the parable? We will not have this man to rule over us. See, people can cloak it in whatever they like. Well, you see, science has proven that the Bible is all a bunch of nonsense, and so we mustn't listen to it. We can uh, go on in our merry way. You do that, you know, or comparative religion. Well, all religions are ultimately the same, and so we'll pick one, and we don't necessarily need this one. Or, or, or they can have their own invented natural religion that God loves everyone, and everything will be okay in the end if we're all just sort of nice to one another. The bottom line is, we will not have this man to rule over us. Enmity with God. And God, for his part, God is at enmity with the sinner. His holy nature cannot tolerate sin. His righteous law promises a curse against sin. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Also, uh, several passages in Romans 
Romans 2, 2, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. After the hardness and after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil. God is, for all intents and purposes, the enemy of the sinner. You see how this works? We said, we said, we said it presumes the kind of conflict like when the woman departs from her husband. Conflict so severe that these two cannot even stand one another's presence. The sinner cannot for one moment abide to be in the presence of holiness. And God for one moment cannot abide to have wickedness in his glorious presence. And so there is a tremendous conflict between God and man. Now, praise God, there is a reconciliation. This great conflict has been resolved. Colossians 1.20 explains it with these words. Having made peace. That's what reconciliation is. Having made peace. It's as if there had been a great war of kingdom against kingdom. But now there's a peace. Now, you must understand the difference here. It's not a truce, but a peace. If we have a truce, that's when two people who are ready to rip each other's throats out say, all right, we're tired of fighting, or uh, we're both out of money, or... Uh, the multinational corporation has decided it's in our all best interest to uh, put our weapons down. So we will still hate each other, but we won't kill each other. And so we have a truce. That's not what reconciliation is. In reconciliation, the source of the hostility is removed. And in its place, there is friendship and love and mutual kindness. This is the great difference between truce and peace. Children, when they fight, often uh, end up with truces. They, they decide, eventually, someone intelligently reasons that uh, all of this fighting is, uh, is disrupting both of their ability to enjoy themselves, and so they'll stop fighting, or something like that. Perhaps there's a spanking, and it brings about a truce. Uh, but if they become fast friends, sharing, loving, delighting in one another's company, this is peace. And this is what is good. This is reconciliation. It's the return to relationship, to love. Now, how did this reconciliation take place? Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, through Christ. This is stated two times in our text, uh, both times with emphasis. The first time is part of the parallel, in him all fullness to dwell, through him to reconcile. And then he says it again, through him. It's like to, to make the point, absolutely nobody missed this point. Through him, not through someone else. Through Jesus. It's like a bold face or an underlining. Reconciliation has taken place through Christ. And Christ only. Well, that's straightforward enough. But how? How has reconciliation taken place through Christ? It's kind of a generic statement. And so he goes on. He says, he made peace through the blood of his cross. Uh, or cross there put for his crucifixion. Obviously his cross didn't bleed. Jesus fled. Through the blood of his cross. The blood that he shed when hanging on the cross. Reconciliation by 
crucifixion. Now, there are several vital points here. Reconciliation is something that has been obtained by an action done. It is finished, Christ said. It is not a process, not something in which the sinner contributes a little, and God contributes a little, and the priest contributes a little, or something like that. It's not a process of enlightenment by which we reconcile ourselves to God, or by uh, whipping ourselves with, uh, with the whips or some other sort of uh, self-abuse as the Colossian heretics were encouraging that we become reconciled to God. This is an objective historical accomplishment by an objective historical person. Christ was crucified. That is a fact of history. Christ was crucified. And in being crucified, Christ made peace. Christ reconciled. It's a thing done, and it's a thing that was accomplished in a specific way, the bloody crucifixion of the Son of God. I'm, uh, there's that statement, familiarity breeds contempt, and I, I'm afraid that that is probably true too often for us with regard to the atonement of Jesus Christ. Please stop and think about this. Don't just file it away. This is the same person whose preeminence over the entire created universe we've just been discussing. This is the firstborn of creation, the maker and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, the beginning of the new creation, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, the eternal Son of God, now betrayed, now judged, now taken by wicked men and beaten and scourged, now clothed with a robe like a king and mocked by soldiers, now denied by every one of his disciples, now having a great crowd of people preferring a convicted murderer in his place. <clears throat> Nails driven into his hands and feet, raised up, stretched out, bleeding and dying, the blood of God. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed The assembly of the wicked have closed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? From the highest throne of the exaltation of heaven, brought down to the most forsaken place in all of history, held up between heaven and earth, accursed, having made peace through the blood of his cross. But of course, the astonishing thing is that this is not a loss. This is not a defeat. In the astonishing redemptive economy of God, this is a victory. This is a triumph. This is the end of sin. The end of the law, the end of the curse, the end of the judgment, nailing it to a tree, spoiling principality and power. Every blow of the hammer 
like the ringing of the bells of victory. Sin, death, Satan, law, curse, judgment, hell, all of these finish. All of these overcome. And of course, I would be remiss not to remind you of the blood. Not just the death of Jesus Christ, but the bloody death of Jesus Christ. Not just any blood, but as it says in Acts, the blood of God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission and no reconciliation. This is the bloody sacrifice of the spotless lamb by the perfect priest on the final altar. The blood is life. The life is in the blood. Our trespasses imputed unto him, him made sin in our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Who was reconciled? Who was reconciled? On the one hand, God was reconciled. God was pleased through Christ to reconcile to himself. Looked at from God's side, as we've seen, there was enmity on account of sin, wrath on account of sin, a curse to be carried out, a judgment to be inflicted. But from God's side, peace is made. The curse of the law is fulfilled in Christ, making peace through the blood of his cross. The judgment is borne by him. The wrath is pacified by satisfaction. The enmity having nothing left at which to be directed. If Christ has been made sin in our behalf, then we can be made the righteousness of God in Him. There is nothing left for the wrath of God to be directed at because it has been poured out. Poured out in full. Now, here is the great astonishing thing about this. Because there's something mysterious in this reconciliation on God's side. Before Christ's death, before reconciliation, before any of this transpired, came the love of God. Romans chapter 5, as we were reading this morning, verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. God commended His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God setting His love upon sinners, determining to save them by Christ and purposing His work. This is what is astonishing. God at once, having enmity and wrath and curse towards sinners by necessity, also extending His grace and mercy in a work of love, in the greatest love, redeeming love. Unreconciled, God is towards us enmity, wrath, and curse. Yet towards his people whom he chooses, he was love and grace and mercy, undertaking their redemption, reconciling them to himself. God is reconciled on the one side. The other side, however, of this reconciliation, because remember we said there were two parties, all things, whether the things upon the earth or the things in the heavens. Now this is somewhat startling, isn't it? Uh, and it requires some explanation. It, it appears on the surface of it to be a rather universal statement, especially when we consider it as a parallel of what we've seen before. Christ created all things, the things in heaven, the things upon the earth. And now it says, God has reconciled to himself all things, the things in heaven, the things upon the earth. How can this be? Is this a universal statement? Uh, what, if it is, what does it mean that it's a universal statement? Well, there's been a variety of interpretations about this. Uh, the most Vulgar, I suppose, is that of, uh, of, 
of origin and universalists after him who proposed that this meant that there was going to be a universal restoration someday of all the damned in hell and the devil himself because Christ was reconciling all things to himself. Well, this is plainly false. It would be a contradiction of all the rest of the Bible. Another opinion has been that... Uh, there was going to be a universal reconciliation, but we're going to play with the definition. Uh, is reconciliation many different ways? Some would be reconciled by submitting to God, others would be reconciled by being damned. Uh, if, if you're like me, that seems a little bit uh, stretching of the use of the word reconciliation. Um, kind of guts the meaning, especially in the, in the context itself. Others have said, well, it means, we're going to change the definition again, we're going to say it means to unite by reconciling. Heaven and earth will be united, the angels and men, but you still can't, you still have a problem with the universalism in that statement. Um, Calvin, I think, probably starts to hit on the right answer, though he only touches on it. Like most people, most of the commentaries don't even answer this question, they just skip it. Uh, Calvin says, Paul's words mean that it is through Christ alone that all creatures who have any connection at all with God cleave to him. I believe that the case is that this language is universal in one sense, but not in another. It is universal contextually in that it points us beyond man to the old and new creation. That's what we've been talking about, a very broad description. The old creation, the new creation. In other words, the benefit of reconciliation as obtained by Christ is not applied to men only. It is applied, first of all, to the earthly creation. Now, this should not be unfamiliar to you. We spent probably half a sermon talking about Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Uh, that whole section about uh, the creation. Uh, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. You remember? Uh, sin intervened in the relationship of God and his entire creation. We're talking the physical creation on account of the fall. What did God say? Cursed is the ground... For your sake, sin corrupted and God cursed the natural creation. Unwillingly, it says in Romans 8, uh, the creation was unwillingly subjected. It has this natural propensity to come into obedience to Christ in the new creation, in the, in the reconciliation, in, in, the re, in the restoration of all things. Uh, but... There is a curse. Wherever there is sin, wherever there is curse, there is estrangement from God. And so there has to be reconciliation. All things upon the earth. In Christ, the creation is and will be reconciled to God, ultimately to be transformed into the new earth. Delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Where there is sin and curse, there must be either judgment or reconciliation. And Paul says, in Christ there will be reconciliation for the things upon the earth, for the physical creation. Moving to a more difficult aspect, the benefit of reconciliation is applied to the things in heaven. Now we know that Christ is not the mediator of angels. Basic doctrine. Christ is not the mediator of angels. And the angels who did not fall have not sinned. Yet here they are said to be reconciled in Christ. That's the things in heaven. Remember the heavenly host. And we talked about the list. 
principalities, dominions, powers, authorities, to the things in heaven. There are a couple of ways that people try to explain this. The first of all, I think, is the most unsuccessful, and that is the ones who say, well, the angels are pure, the angels are righteous, but when you compare it to God... Well, nothing is really pure when you compare it to God. So, in a sense, God finds iniquity in his angels, and so they need to have reconciliation. Calvin, in fact, uh, was one of the principal ones who, who advanced this. I think Augustine did also, and several others. I don't like that. I think it's a bad move, um, because that's the mediator of angels right there. If there's, And I think it's a misunderstanding of the nature of the righteousness that we have before God. Um, even as redeemed sinners... Uh, surely that could be said of us that we're not going to be qualitatively as pure as God is. That's impossible. God is infinitely pure. It, but it means that before him we're innocent. And uh, and the angels, some fell, some sinned, and, and were found guilty and thrown out and condemned and became the demons, which means that the others must not have sinned. So in that sense, I, I think it cannot be that there's that there is a reconciliation in that sense. I think the other thing that Calvin says, the second thing, and which many other commentators say, which I think is closer to the heart of the matter, is that the angels are unconfirmed in their estate. They are, because a group of them fell. We know that. So they can fall. So they have a... And any time there's a hazard of falling, you're unconfirmed in, in your estate. And so they require to be confirmed in righteousness... And this reconciliation confirms and assures their future estate just like it does for us. We're taken from total enmity with God and confirmed in, that we're not going to fall. If God has given you uh, all things, you know, who can separate you from the love of, of, of God? We're confirmed in that estate, and so it is with the angels. Though there was no actual enmity, there was potential enmity or potential guilt. It was... It was it's, um, a transitory state that the angels are in. They can fall. They can sin. But now this has been removed and they're joined in confidence to God in this new creation. Uh, they receive not salvation, but security. Uh, that's uh, about the best that I've seen and about the best that I can do in terms of explaining how it is that Christ is, is the reconciliation of the things in heaven. Now that's easy enough. Uh, the things upon the earth, the things in heaven... But what do we do with this statement, all things? All things. Is this as universal as all things were created by him? Will fallen angels and damned men be reconciled as well? Well, no, of course not. This is a loose parallel. I think we can paraphrase the intent this way. All the things that were created, whether in heaven or upon earth, were created by Jesus Christ. All the things that are reconciled, whether in heaven or upon earth, are reconciled by Jesus Christ. It points not to an absolute equality or universal reconciliation, but rather to Christ's headship in reconciliation. Everything that is actually reconciled to God is reconciled by Jesus Christ and by his bloody, peacemaking death upon the cross. Christ is the only reconciler for man, for angels, for heaven, for earth, this is very similar to the kind of thing that we saw in Romans 5. By the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. That looks like it should be absolutely equal, but it's not. Otherwise, you've got universal justification, which cannot be true, contrary to the scriptures. Universal condemnation, but only 
only partial uh, redemption or justification. Uh, so it's the same type of thing. Um, it looks like an absolute equality at first, but it's not, uh, because it would be unscriptural, the implications uh, of that. Let me uh, make a few applications before we conclude this week. About this enmity between God and man, when we think of it, we must not just think of it in third person, God and sinners. We need to think of it in the second person and in the first person. God and me, God and you. Paul himself makes this very application in the next verse. He says, having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now is he reconciled. You see, this enmity is a vital personal concern. We are conscripted into the army against God by our birth, willingly. We are born evil, born fighting God with enmity toward him on our part and wrath and curse abiding on us on his part. And you had he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of the flesh, filling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. Enmity is the condition that you and I are in by nature unless there has been some change. And consider also not merely that we are in this estate, but how truly desperate it is. We are engaged wholeheartedly in a war against the throne of heaven and the seat of creation. It's as if a speck of dust were to declare war on you or on me. That's absurd. It's hopeless. Yes, that, how desperate it is. We are a speck of dust to God, and God will crush his enemies. And if we declare proudly in thought and deed that we are the enemies of God, what remains for us but to be destroyed? We are in a desperate, desperate condition, willingly engaged in a hopeless war against an almighty and eternal God. Let me point something else out to you now regarding our reconciliation and this is, of course, logically implied from what we've just said. Where is the initiative in this reconciliation? Does, does man suddenly see the madness and futility of warring against God and say, All right, we must stop this. This is insane. We must serve God. Let's do that. And then everyone suddenly becomes... No, not at all. No, man, man in, in, in the face of the plainest evidence, like, like a giant boulder rolling down to crush him, still stands his ground and wars against God. The initiative of reconciliation is with God. It's like in uh, Ephesians 2 there where he's been uh, discussing, uh, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, by nature were children of wrath even as the others, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. It doesn't say, but man changed his mind. He says, but God. Actions taken by God. Colossians 1, 20. Reconciling all things unto himself. See, God is reconciled. God is acting. God has done something. To remedy this situation, 
to redeem men, to make peace. The sovereignty of God, election, predestination, that's what we're talking about. These aren't ugly doctrines, these are our only hope. Salvation is of the Lord. And not God in His arbitrary, capricious ways, but God just and righteous, fully vindicated in destroying His enemies. God who is rich in mercy for the love wherewith He loved us, sent His only begotten Son, the Lord of heaven and earth, to suffer and die, to reconcile us to Himself. If we are to be saved, it is by God, and it is His love and mercy and kindness and grace. Observe again the preeminence and uniqueness of Christ. Of Jesus Christ. Reconciliation is through Him and Him alone. Reconciliation is not through us or through our strivings or our works or our sufferings. It's not through the mediation of angels or dead saints or living saints. It's not received from the priest or from the pope or from a wafer. It's not dispensed by a ritual or an ordinance or by baptism or by the supper or... or it's certainly not dispensed by some man-invented ordinance like walking an aisle or signing a piece of paper. It's the work of God in and through the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are to be reconciled, this is the only way. If we are to find peace with God, this is the one with whom we must have to do. You may look everywhere but Christ and anywhere but Christ, but all you will see is an army of God with God at its head, breathing out slaughter, curse hanging over you like Damocles' sword, the law chanting in chorus, guilty, guilty, guilty sinner, sins crying out for judgment, hell with an open mouth waiting to swallow you up in torment forever. But when you look to Christ, when you look to Christ by faith, there's another picture. The law not only silenced, but pronouncing innocence. Hell's mouth shut forever, against which uh, against uh, hell's gates cannot prevail against the gates of heaven. God is your heavenly Father, the saints as your brethren, all heaven rejoicing at the salvation of just one sinner, a home prepared, a river of life from which to drink, Christ as brother and kindly servant king. Reconciliation. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Mm -hmm.